1: Most desk chairs we're familiar with try to lock the human body into a 90-degree angle. When it comes to healthy posture, however, there's no such thing as a perfect position. We weren't meant to stand all day or to sit all day, and we definitely were not meant to sit at a 90-degree angle on a stiff chair behind a desk. Our bodies were designed to move, and that's why Fully's Jarvis Standing Desk is the best-reviewed desk in the world. It's the foundation of a healthier way to work. My husband has one of these, he has a bad back. He has this and he also has their chair that's like a a stool on a rocker kind of if it makes sense and basically just forces him to not be in a static position. And it helps a lot. Uh, He complains less, which is great for our marriage. Fully standing desk and collection of active chairs give you the freedom to move, stretch, and be in a healthier, more comfortable position that works for your body's unique and changing needs as it changes throughout the day. Foley's careful selection of active sitting chairs that's the stool on the rocker thing is what really separates them from any other furniture company their entire collection of chairs support healthier postures that align your spine open up your hips engage your core and improve circulation you will feel relief immediately and your body and your back will thank you it's a smarter healthier way to work a more balanced human way to work To get your body moving in your workspace, go to fully.com slash friends. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash friends. F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash friends. Fully. Desk, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. And this show is something of a cheat, I am going to be talking with Carol Anderson. She's a professor at Emory University and the author of White Rage The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, and most recently, One Person, No Vote How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. These are two books that have the with friends like these stamp of approval completely. There is not much, I think, that Carol and I have to disagree on. Our differences are rather obvious. But we don't spend a lot of time talking about those. We're just gonna talk about the history of voter suppression in America and the use of violence uh, to sustain white supremacy. These are topics familiar to you as listeners. Uh, Carol is wonderful. I hope you enjoy the history lesson. It gets better towards the end. I'll just say that. Like there's a lot of really raw stuff in here. Stuff that could make you feel very dispirited. But I'll point out, Carol has not lost her spirit. And we we wind up in a pretty good place without further ado, Carol Anderson. So I, I hadn't expected to be able to talk to you about current events today. I mean, we're so <laughs> we're weeks past the midterm elections. We've solved all of our voting problems as far as I know. Right. I mean, that's <clears throat> it's no longer an issue or or wait, wait, it's still a problem. Something's happening
0: in Georgia right now where you are, right? It is such a problem. Uh, you know, you think about where we are right now, and we like to bill ourselves as the world's greatest democracy. And what we've seen is um, in North Carolina, where you have an organized operation, uh, taking absentee ballots from um, black people and from Native Americans and either not turning them in or putting your candidate's name on there and not very just just fraud, election fraud. Then what we have happening up in Wisconsin is you have a lame duck state legislature where the Republicans have lost um, the statewide elections. And so this legislature decides that it's basically going to hold a bloodless coup and strip those elected officials for, of their power. We're seeing the same thing happening in Michigan. We're seeing the same thing happening in Florida, where you had that wonderful ballot initiative that passed that um, recognized the voting rights of 1.4 million Floridians. And now the lame duck legislature is like, yeah, we need to like consult and think about how to do this. No, you don't. <laughs> so through throughout what we're seeing, you, you know, I talked about... In White Rage, the the book before this one, uh, One Person, No Vote, the kind of methodical, bureaucratic, uh, smooth ways to undermine um, democracy, to undermine African-Americans advancement toward holding on and and advancing in their civil rights. And this is what we're seeing in these state legislatures. It's it's it's. Oh, I'm getting ready to use a Hillary Clinton word. It's deplorable. <laughs> I was going to go with just depressing. Um, <laughs> No, I think, you know, in some ways it is depressing, but, you know, I think about—so this is some things I've been running through in my head, and one is that you think about the kind of mobilization that happened here in Georgia, Mm -hmm. right, around the Stacey Abrams campaign, um, around voter registration, around get out the vote, and and the kind of chicanery that happened having the secretary of state overseeing the election in which he's running for governor— declaring himself the winner and then stepping down as secretary of state meanwhile there's all of this stuff that has happened under his watch that systematically undercut um the ability to vote the access to the vote for those more than likely, who would not vote for him, so the lack of working machines in in majority african American precincts, um, the uh, purges uh, the the holding via exact match of people who are registering to vote, so putting them in a pending status, and seventy percent of the fifty three thousand he had in pending status were African Americans I mean all of that kind of chicanery um, and and on one hand, it really is depressing. But I think about Frederick Douglass. You know, this is the, his 200th anniversary of his birth, right? And fighting slavery did not happen after he gave one speech mm. or even two speeches. After he mobilized some folks, you know, in Ireland, after he did multiple things, it took the kind of ongoing... Um, Engagement, recognizing that he's fighting a leviathan, and it's going to take that kind of power to knock this thing down, and that's what we have to recognize.
1: I actually really appreciate you pushing back on the idea that this is depressing, because depression is a sometimes kind of a, a luxury. I suffer from depression, I am, but 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 one can't one can feel your feels, as we sometimes say, but then you have yeah. to keep moving. Yes,
0: um, that's ha- it. Okay, I'm going to get a t-shirt with that on it. I, <laughs> you can feel your feel. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's what we say in the the 12-step the rooms I'm in. It's like, go ahead and feel what you're feeling, but then you have to do something after that.
0: Yes, that's it. I mean, because it is, it's like, all of that work. But you know what? We got really close, and we had some victories. Yeah, And we've got to recognize that and continue to be engaged and continue to mobilize because what they are doing is so, um, I've already used the word deplorable. Uh, It is absolutely repulsive and disgusting and undemocratic.
1: Yes, undemocratic. So it was astonishing to see how deeply voter suppression is embedded in U.S. history. And... What was amazing to me is that the violence is something that's changed a little, right? It's We mm-hmm. still have a lot of violence um, committed against people of color. It is not as uh, sanctioned as sanctioned. But the thing that, w- that just I could not uh, pick my jaw off the floor every once in a while was how the language and justifications around ju- voter justification have not changed in like 200 years.
0: You know, um, Mark Twain is has reportedly said, history may not repeat itself, but it show do rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> and that was one of the things I really wanted to lay out in One Person, No Vote. Um, and that's why you see me going really deep and heavy with the Mississippi Plan of 1890 mm-hmm. that really launched massive disfranchisement of Black voters, because they had to figure out, how do we get around the 15th Amendment? How do we get around the amendment that says the right to vote shall not be abridged by the state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude? And they said, ah, I know. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the societally imposed conditions on that population and use those conditions as the, the, the litmus test in order to be able to vote. So you look at poverty because that's what centuries of slavery will do. It creates poverty. And then when you do not have any kind of compensation coming in after that, after those centuries of, of, of slavery, you've got poverty. So now you require a poll tax. Mm-hmm. All you've got to do is pay to vote. And the language, democracy is expensive. Elections are expensive. People need to be invested in order to be able to participate. And so all we're asking is just for them to be able to, to, to give us just a little bit of money, just to pay a po- small poll tax to be able to, to vote. Well, for poor people, that's anywhere between 2 to 6% of their annual income.
1: And you talk about Andrew Johnson's reasons for not signing that, that first Civil Rights Act. And it sounds like, I swear to God, any one of these things could be said by Trump tomorrow. He didn't want to set up black dependency. He didn't want to okay. have a bloated federal government. And this is the exact quote, which is the one that I just, again, jaw-dropping. There was to be no born-on-American soil lottery.
0: I, yes. And this is also, and, and as you know, because you're a historian, this is why I love history. Because it helps us understand that we're not dealing with something that just popped out of the soil out of nowhere, that there is there are incredible tangled roots all in this. And we have to understand that to know what we're dealing with, because there is a mythology out there that, well, once we get rid of Trump, then it's all going to go back to normal. Well, what's normal? Mm -hmm. If we just go back to normal, we're going to get another Trump. We have to understand how tangled this is, that when we have this idea about, you know, uh, born on American soil lottery, wow, that uh, we don't have to have a we're not going to have some big bloated government that then leads to black dependency. But then we ignore, and this is why I I just, like, loved laying out Andrew Johnson in White Rage, because he is using and moving hell, earth, and high water for the Homestead Act, which would provide hundreds of acres of free land to whites, And using the power of the federal government to remove Native Americans off of this land, off of their land, so that whites can have it, so that particularly poor whites can have some kind of economic foundation in order to thrive but even conceptualizing using the land of traitors these are the confederate folks who attacked the united states particularly these plantation owners whose who that the war was fought in their in their vested self-interest in order to maintain slavery using their land to be able to redistribute it to the people who actually worked that land was absolutely anathema and repulsive to him. And so he rescinded uh, the order for 40 acres because, you know, they've got to learn how to work. They've got to learn how to work to get what they, you know, if they want something, they're going to have to learn how to work for it. How many times have we heard that? Think about where we are right now, even with um, Medicaid benefits, how places like Arkansas are attaching a, you must have a job in order to get these benefits. Or places like Ohio, because Ohio really drums it in beautifully. Ohio has that same rule, but they have exempted uh, rural counties and predominantly white counties from having the work requirement, whereas counties that have the big cities in them, where you have the majority of African-Americans living, those work requirements are still in place because if you want this big government benefit, you're going to have to learn how to work.
1: I also want to point out that the other thing that's consistent here is that although back in the day, in Reconstruction period, it was still okay to say the N-word and people could be very blatant about their reasoning for, for not wanting black people to vote, mm-hmm. the quote-unquote logic of, of the voter suppression and the tactics of voter suppression were deviously, supposedly colorblind or race-neutral, they didn't build into it necessarily the words, we're not going to have black people vote, but they just used the existing circumstances like we've been talking about to lay out barriers to voting. Exactly, And that is why it's so incredibly difficult even today to talk about it. I, so I say it on the show before, my in-laws are Trump supporters. We can talk about it later. Um, <laughs> but my mother-in-law is a genuinely wonderful person. If you're listening, Pat, you're a wonderful person, but she knows, I, she knows this story, which is that we were in the car somewhere, we were listening to Fox News, and they were talking about voter ID, and she turned to me and she said, what's voter ID? And there is a, we have a rule in the family, which is that when people ask me a question about politics, I say, do you want my opinion or do you want the Wikipedia, right? <laughs> and she said, uh, Wikipedia, and I was like, well, okay, I'll do my best here. And I talked about how voter ID um I said, said what the concept was, and she was like, well, that sounds like a good idea. And I said, well, here's the flaw in it. The flaw in voter ID is that well, there, there are people who don't necessarily have IDs, right? And she mm-hmm. said, what do you mean? I was like, well, very. think about who doesn't drive. For old people, disabled mm-hmm. people, mm-hmm. poor people. Mm-hmm. And I said, so if you have voter ID, those people don't get to vote. And Pat said, I swear to God, she said, well, I'm sure that's not what they meant. <laughs> That sounds like an unintended consequence to me. So my okay. family's from the South, so I do get to say this. Bless her heart. <laughs>
0: and then did you direct her to the ruling in the Fourth Circuit in North Carolina? That where, where they looked at what North Carolina state legislature had done in terms of voter ID as well as um, cutting early voting hours, as well as removing uh, polling stations from minority neighborhoods, and said, wow, you have targeted African-Americans with nearly surgical precision. Mm -hmm. This is deliberate. They know exactly what they're doing. Exactly. But just like the Mississippi Plan of 1890, it is coded in the language of protecting the integrity of democracy, It is coded in the language of being fiscally uh, responsible, Um, and it is coded in the language of ensuring the integrity of democracy. So it has all of the kinds of buzzwords that resonate, and because the the laws don't say we don't want black people to vote— It looks I mean, it looks race neutral. I mean, the poll tax and the literacy test both went through the Supreme Court and were approved by the Supreme Court as not violating the 15th Amendment. Mm. And so it's the same thing when we're looking at these voter ID laws, when we're looking at these voter roll purges, when we're looking at um, what's happening with the closure of, of polling places or let's let's face it. It was the 2013 Supreme Court decision, Shelby County v. Holder, that gutted the Voting Rights Act, that act that came out of Selma, out of the brutality out of Selma, that came out of the brutality out of systematically denying American citizens their right to vote. And the Supreme Court in 2013 said, eh. You know, we really don't need a Voting Rights Act anymore because, eh, you know, racism is really not the kind of force in America that it was back then. And, eh, you know, and we're looking up and, you know, black people, their voter turnout rate is almost equal to whites in some area. And eh, black people are getting elected to office as are Lut- Latinos. And, eh, you know, and, and so they're looking at all of this saying, ah, eh, we don't need it anymore. But what they're not looking at is that the Voting Rights Act had provided the space for all of that to happen. And, as I said, racism really isn't that force in America. The, all they had to do was just look at the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act in 2006. And there, the Department of Justice provided evidence to Congress that they had blocked over 700 changes that the states and these jurisdictions wanted to make because those changes were racially discriminatory. So if you've got over 700 changes in the laws that that these places that are under what's called preclearance of the Department of Justice from the Voting Rights Act, where everything that they wanted to do had to be okayed first before it got implemented, then You're thinking, eh, maybe racism is still a force in America and we need the power of the federal government in here to stop this craziness from happening so that American citizens can have their rights. Um, But they gutted, the, the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act and two hours later, Texas implemented SB 14, which was their voter ID law. And and Texas, and it said you had to have a government-issued photo ID. But your University of Texas ID from a state university did not count. But your gun registration card did. Hmm. Texas knew for as well, did you know your driver's license would count? Yay! But as you noted, there are lots of folks who don't have a driver's license. Texas also knew that one-third of its counties did not have a driver's license bureau, so that people were going to have to go outside the county to get a driver's license. Texas estimated that there were going to be a large number of their population were going to have to make about a 250-mile round trip in order to get to and from the closest driver's license bureau. Texas decided not to reimburse It's citizens who had to make that trip in order to get the license that those folks were going to need in order to be able to vote. Wow, that's a poll tax.
1: Sunbasket has been rated the number one meal kit by leading publications, and it's no wonder why they offer 18 weekly recipes with options for paleo, gluten free, Mediterranean, lean and clean, vegan, and more, including a category they don't advertise for some reason called Speedy, which is my favorite. But for me, what matters is that Sunbasket helps me eat healthier. It's as simple as that. Sunbasket makes it easy and convenient and even speedy to cook healthy, delicious meals at home no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen. Now you get more options than ever. Just go to the Sunbasket app and pick from 18 weekly recipes. Easily cook dishes. Uh, Some of the recent ones include sheet pan roasted Italian sausages with radicchio fennel and pear. Yucatan Turkey Chili Verde, Vietnamese glass noodle soup with shrimp and lime. The Vietnamese thing sounds like fancy and complicated because it has the word glass noodles in it, but it is actually one of their speedy recipes. It comes together in less than 20 minutes. Sunbasket works with best farms and suppliers to bring you fresh organic produce and responsibly raised meats and seafoods. Everything is pre measured and delivered to your door. You can get healthy, delicious meals on the table in as little as 15 minutes. I think that's if you're moving really fast. I'm going to say 20 is really more realistic, but that's fast. And what I really like about Sunbasket is that it's a great kind of starter kit to cooking on your own. It makes cooking less intimidating and it makes you remember that it's actually easier to throw something together in 15 minutes from fresh ingredients than it is to call for pizza or Chinese. Yet again, Go to sunbasket.com slash friends today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. Again, that's sunbasket.com slash friends for $35 off your first order. sunbasket.com slash friends. In Washington, the story often ends when Congress passes a law. For the impact, that's where the story begins. The Impact from Vox is a podcast about the way policies shape people's lives. Last season, Sarah Cliff did what she does best, examine the way that healthcare care policy has impacted millions of Americans. This season, she's traveling the country to report on some of the most interesting policy experiments happening today, looking at cities and states as laboratories of democracy. Wrestling with serious problems and experimenting with bold solutions. From democracy vouchers in Seattle to education in Vermont to housing in Baltimore. You're going to want to go on this journey with Sarah Cliff. You might know her from the Weeds Vox's policy podcast. But the impact is more like this show. It's about what happens when these things actually intersect in people's lives. So follow Sarah Clift as she follows policymakers who have designed these experiments and the people whose lives have been changed by them. Listen and subscribe to The Impact by Vox right now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. I've also uh, read White Rage, mm. and I have to say, although they they do not share titles, one person, no vote, really feels like a sequel
0: of sorts to me. It, it really is. So what happened with that? So I'm out giving talks on white rage, <laughs> and I get to that last chapter, how to unelect a black president, mm-hmm. and I get to that section where I'm talking about voter suppression. And... You know, and I'm talking about voter IDs, and when I would get to the Q&A section of the, of the talk, somebody would invariably raise his or her hand going, but I don't understand. Mm. How hard is it to get an ID? Everybody's got an ID. I, I, I don't understand. And I would begin to lay out how hard it is to actually get an ID because it's not any ID. Your your grocery store card will not count as a viable ID, um, despite what Donald Trump says. Um, that your 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 sometimes your student ID from a public university will not count as a government-issued photo ID. So it's not just any ID. And as I started talking about the IDs, as I talked about the lies of voter fraud, I would see this kind of look like, what the heck is going on here? And I realized in that moment that I had to take that 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 quizzical look that that and then that indignation that I was feeling in the audiences when I began to explain how this worked and really lay this out much more systematically in a book, so it is like white rage, the sequel <laughs> um, <laughs> on the issue of voter suppression and i I
1: really want to avoid using the word depressed depressing um, <laughs> but I have to tell you so. I read the book kind of all in one go, Getting Ready to Talk to You, and it was—I'm going to now use the word <clears throat> sobering. Yes. Uh, because, you know, I I actually have a degree in American history. Uh, Yay! Yeah. Uh, yes! I love historians. 20th century American history, which gives me a little bit of an excuse about what I'm about to say, but not really, which is that I knew some of this stuff. I knew a lot of it. But what reading about it in vivid detail made me realize is that this is not the story we tell people about ourselves at all. Yes. And that yes. you lay out really clearly that voter suppression is actually the prime mover of like almost all American history. Like it's, it's, it's embedded In the Constitution, to begin with, deciding who actually gets to participate is the story of our country.
0: Wow. And the battles have been to open up that franchise. And even with the opening up of that franchise, then you would get new and um, much more subtle and much more corrosive ways to figure out how to close that franchise off again. I mean, it is just—and once you can silence a a people politically, once you can silence voices politically, then you don't have— Access then to the policymakers that are um, crafting the laws, crafting the rules that govern how you can live, where you can live, where you can go to school, how much school is going to cost you, um, uh, where you can work, what kind of wages you can earn. I mean, all of those things, whether you can even leave a city for a better job, you know, what we understand the way capitalism works, that labor has the right to go um, where it can get the best wages and benefits package and to have laws crafted to say, no, you can't do that. You have to work for whatever we choose to pay you. Mm -hmm. And if you try to leave, we will use the incredible criminal justice system to grind you down. Once we begin to understand how this thing works, then we're telling a very different story about America.
1: And again, avoiding the word depressing, uh, (laughs) just going to because it is also it does make you
0: also want to move to action. I will say that. Yes. I mean, and that's what what prompted white rage. Um. Several things. Um, First, and I didn't even realize it, was the killing of Amadou Diallo in 1999 um, by the NYPD and watching Rudy Giuliani... Uh, who was the mayor of New York City at the time, strut around as if there had been nothing untoward that had happened. There was nothing wrong with the gunning down of an unarmed man uh, shooting 41 bullets at him. Instead, he's got his flip charts and he's talking about how crime is down and New York City is safer and his policies are working. And I'm looking at this and I'm going, Your policies aren't working. Black people are afraid to walk the streets for being stopped and frisked and gunned down by the NYPD. This isn't safer. Something is wrong here, but I didn't know what to call it. And, you know, and I continue as a scholar to research and to write and to think. And there I was. It was August 2014. And Ferguson, Missouri is on fire. After the killing of Michael Brown. And watching the news, it didn't matter what station I was turned to. And I'm flipping, trying to get the story. And so MSNBC, CNN, Fox, and they're all saying virtually the same thing Look at black people burning up where they live. Can you believe black people mm-hmm. are burning up where they live? Ooh. And it was that narrative of black pathology, and it was ahistorical as if there was no history before that moment at all that led to this. And I said, wow, we are so focused in on the flames. We have missed the kindling mm. because this is not black rage. This is white rage. And I went, oh, my gosh. And I started writing um, because those policies led to that moment. And th- and I wanted to be able to systematically with documentation, with the evidence, help us as a nation begin to have a truthful conversation based on evidence about how we got here. Because if we understand how we got here, then we're talking about different kinds of policies in order to strengthen this democracy instead of the lies of black pathology that we use that can systematically erode and weaken this nation
1: one of the things you make clear in white rage, I think in the introduction, it's tr- I know it's toward the beginning, is you, you say something about how this isn't about necessarily violence, right? That this yes. is about systems. This is about institutions. This isn't necessarily the kind of rage that's red-faced, screaming rage. It's, it's the um, rage that's expressed as a culture, the rage that's expressed as supremacy, and I think yes, you do do a great job. And there is a through line straight through white rage, through one person, no vote uh, of those institutional systems of, of white supremacy. But one thing that really surprised me, but I'm going to say two things. One is that there is a lot of violence, too. I mean, there's. <laughs> oh, yes. There's <laughs> oh, yes. an incredible amount of just. The Mary Turner lynching. I. Oh, my God! So full disclosure, I actually have the audiobook of White Rage, which is a odd thing maybe to have on audiobook, but <laughs> <laughs> I put it on te- while I was uh doing some errands the other day, and um I had forgotten about the uh, sweet family mm. incident in Detroit, mm.
0: which mm. is just do you want to tell that story really quickly mm. yeah, it- because, again, you know, one of the narratives that we have in America is that all you have to do, I mean, African-Americans have heard this so yeah. many times. Why can't you do what the immigrants do? Why can't you do what everybody else does? Why can't you pick yourself up by your bootstraps? Yeah. Why can't you? Right? Mm-hmm. And so here we have Ossian Sweet, who comes out of a very poor family in Florida, and He works and works and works, gets into Howard University Medical School, um, gets his, his, his M.D., then goes to work in Detroit. And so this is the chapter that's in The Great Migration. Goes to work in Detroit, and he's a physician. Um, he's he's married. He has a child. So you're getting that kind of American dream narrative with Aussie and Sweet, right? From 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 nothing to a physician. He wants to live in a good neighborhood. Married, child, nuclear family. Again, that narrative, right? And but Detroit has a rule about where Black people can live. And black people are only supposed to live in an area called the Bottoms. And one-fourth of the homes in the Bottoms don't have indoor plumbing. Imagine that in a city in the north in the 1920s. And and the rents, and this is simple supply and demand, and the rents are going sky high because black people are pouring in to Detroit because of the auto industry, because the jobs are paying so much better than they were when you're sharecropping. And so Ossian Sweet's like, I'm not raising my family in this really crowded area that doesn't even have indoor plumbing. And so he buys a home on Garland, and it's a beautiful bungalow, but it's a whites-only neighborhood. And so as he, when he and his family move in, um. The Neighborhood Association has been meeting, trying to figure out how do we stop this invasion. I love that. Uh, So you've got a physician who's buying a home, and this is in a blue-collar neighborhood, right? But because he's black, this is an invasion. They surround the home. They're yelling the N word. They're throwing rocks at his house. Well, he has already been through several of these 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 racial terroristic moments, like the Red Summer in in uh, Washington D.C. And so he has guns in the home. And so as the crowd rushes his home, and he's already called the cops, and the cops are sitting there and they're not doing anything. So as the crowd rushes his home, throwing rocks, you know, get the ends, get the ends. Boom. Shots are fired. Two men are, sh- are um, uh, in the crowd are, are shot. One is killed. The cops then rush in and arrest everybody in the sweet home and charge them with murder. So here you have the basic right to self-defense being known mm-hmm. not if you're black. Here you have your home. is your Not if you're black. Here you have the American dream and just just being shattered. There are two trials. There are lies all along the way. You have the newspapers lying. Um, there was a reporter there who saw everything that happened. And his editor said, no, we're not running with that story. We're going to run with the other story. And that other story was the one where first there were, that you had an arsenal. The Sweets came in there to basically kill white people. Mm. Wow. In these two trials, finally, they were found. The first was a, a, a hung jury. The second trial, they were finally found not guilty. Sweets' brother dies of tuberculosis from the time spent in the jail his wife dies of tuberculosis from the time spent in the jail, and his baby girl dies of tuberculosis because she is around—she becomes around her mother who has tuberculosis. And eventually, Ossian and Sweet can't take it anymore. He's getting, his home is getting ready to get foreclosed on, the one that he basically has lost his entire family for, and he commits suicide. He moves back to the bottoms um, and commits suicide.
1: I think the reason—that's not the most violent story you tell, of course.
0: No, not no. Not by
1: a long shot. But I think the reason why that story strikes me so hard is because it is the story of someone who tried to follow all the rules, right? Yes. he yes. did.
0: He did all the stuff you're supposed to do. Yes. <laughs> and was punished and, and- for it. Yeah. And so because part of what I'm going at in this 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 in white rage is that how America needs the narrative of black pathology yeah. in order to then explain and justify a series of policies that are absolutely abhorrent. And so you need to to have the well black people really don't care about education as a way to justify um, the systematic and systemic underfunding of black schools. Except this ongoing battle for access to quality education undermines and undercuts that narrative that black people don't care about schools and don't care about whether their kids get educated or not. But we've all been in rooms where somebody has said that and we have seen policies implemented based on that lie of black pathology. You know, the same thing goes with the criminal justice system. You know, the, the problem is, is that, you know, black people are, are you know, are drug dealers and they're, they're criminals and they're thugs. How many times have we heard that? Mm-hmm. Except when you look at the data, black people actually do drugs the least or equal in some cases uh, for different types of drugs. But as far as as their drug usage does not match what you're seeing in terms of the incarceration rates. I mean, it is it is so disproportionate the way that African-Americans have been targeted in the war on drugs. But that targeting was 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 able to then deal with the incredible advancements of the civil rights movement, dealing with the Voting Rights Act and dealing with the Civil Rights Act, because with a felony conviction, then there are all kinds of rights as a felon that you don't have. So, mass incarceration then deals with issues of, you know, if you it was what we saw in Florida if you have a felony conviction, you can't vote. Mm-hmm. Wow you've lost your right to vote. It dealt with um, in the Civil Rights Act, if you have a felony conviction, there's some student loans that you can't get. There's some educational opportunities you won't be able to have. There's some places where you can't live. So all of those thou shalt not discriminate um, measures in the Civil Rights Act don't apply to those who have a felony conviction. So that's what I'm charting through here is that we get this African-Americans make advancements and then you have the policymakers coming through figuring out how to undercut that. And where that violence comes in, because violence is absolutely important in America, too, is that it's not violence as violence, but what I'm laying out there. Are how the respectable elements in society sanction that violence, yeah. are okay with that violence. And that's why the Mary Turner story is so, so horrific and so important. Um, Not only did they, you know, you get this mass lynching in Georgia, but a woman who is angry that her husband was lynched is then lynched herself, um, hung, stripped, hung upside down. Um, She's eight months pregnant. Um, She's basically burned. Um, You know, they set her on fire. Her stomach is quivering. They cut the baby out of her. They stomp on the baby's head. Everybody knows who did it and nothing happens to the murderers what does that say in a society
1: now that that probably is the most violent thing you talk about in your in your book yeah and i can't help but think of what happens today exactly it's hard
0: not not to right exactly exactly i mean so it's like when we see a video of Eric Garner being choked to death, we see it happening in front of our eyes, and we're told, "No, there wasn't a crime here." Yeah. Wow. Wow. <gasps> or, or uh, I think
1: one of the other reasons why this the Sweet case was on my mind is because there's been two recent stories about Black men legally owning, carrying <gasps> weapons,
0: and right. being shot. By exactly, You know, so we get this narrative of, all you really need is a good guy with a yeah, gun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So here, in one case, you have a security guard who stops a shooting in a bar and he's gunned down by the police. In the other case, there's a shooting at a mall in Alabama and this is a soldier. Mm-hmm. Wow. And he is... Re- ushering people out, getting people out of the line of fire, getting people to safety. And he is shot three times in the back. So this this gets us to, I
1: think, white culpability, actually, Hmm. because I do not want to end our conversation without talking about it. I heard you do an interview not too long ago, and you said something that I thought Okay, she's a professor, she's an expert. She has to be right about this, but I have to double check it because it just it it grates on my spine. And it was most white people voting today have never cast a vote for a Democratic president. Mm-hmm. That is true. <laughs>
0: It Turns out you are correct. <laughs> I know. And so and, I was just and, like, because you like, no, that can't be right. Can't that can't be. be right. This can't be right. <laughs> can't be right. Nope. It's, because it totally sounds right. so. Since 1964, yeah. yeah, with the passage of the Civil Rights Act, where the federal government said it would put its power and authority behind recognizing African American citizenship. And that law was signed by President Lyndon Johnson, a Democrat. And they've been punishing Democrats ever since. The majority of whites who have voted have not voted for a Democratic candidate for president since then.
1: Yeah. And, you know, he famously said, we've lost the South for a generation. He was being optimistic, right? Completely optimistic. <laughs> he, he, they lost white people.
0: Like, for what? generations, period. Exactly. Think about that. So when we think about where we are as a nation right now, when you think about that the only group that voted in the majority for a man who who admitted grabbing them by the because you can move on them because, you know, you're a star, they let you do it. For a man who there were clear allegations about um, a conspiracy with the Russian government. All of this is coming out during the election, and we don't see his taxes. Mm-hmm. The only group that voted for him, and this is a man who said, coming down the escalator, <laughs> Mexicans are rapists and criminals, mm-hmm. who said black people live in hellholes, who was behind the whole birther racist lie, who I mean, when you looked at everything that he was, he wasn't a successful businessman. There was nothing that he was offering except pure, uncut white supremacy. Yeah. And the only group that voted in the majority for him were whites. Yeah, that's on us.
1: So Third Love is, I think there is one other sponsor that this happens with. But Third Love is the only sponsor that I've repeatedly gotten unsolicited... Uh, Rave reviews from fans. Uh, People have emailed me and tweeted at me how much they love their third lip bras. And I I sort of wish I was making this up because, you know, capitalism is oppressive, but people love their stuff. So and I have to agree, like as long as we're going to conform to gender stereotypes and have to wear bras... You want to go with one that's really comfortable, and Third Love is incredibly comfortable, and it's comfortable because they have more options for sizes than anyone else out there. Uh, They have half cups, which is a thing that I believe that they invented, and also they allow you to do a fitting in the privacy of your own home, which is really helpful for people who, for whatever reason, don't want to have a stranger touching their girls or whatever it is you call yours. And I think that that's really wonderful. I have a friend uh, who is non-gender conforming who actually got her first good bra from Third Love because she finally was able to get something that really fits her using their fit quiz. They design their bras with breast shape and size in mind using thousands of real women's measurements so they fit perfectly and feel even better. They know there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they're offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com friends to find your perfect-fitting bra and get 15% off your first order. That's thirdlove.com friends for 15% off today. Have you noticed there's nowhere to go for good basics anymore? Well, at Everlane, they make long-lasting, beautiful essentials, and they go to the best ethical factories to do it. They're quality basics you can actually feel good about. Everlane only makes premium essentials using the finest materials without traditional markups, and they'll tell you their real costs so you know you're not overpaying. Everlane wants you to know what you're paying for and why. They are radically transparent about every step in their process, from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. I have seen them interact with people online, asking questions about where things come from, and they'll tell you. They'll point you right to where it's from. Essentials like the Cotton Crew T-shirt are exactly what they should be, simple, stylish, and made from quality materials. Lately, I have been loving their cashmere, which is affordable but ethically produced. Uh, They have this waffle weave shirt that I'm going to be honest, I'm just seeing right now on the website, and I think I'm going to have to order it. Um, But I also love their uh, jeans, and I love their shoes, although right now in Minnesota, there's not a lot of call for dress shoes. Um, it's, It's boot season here. But Everlane's Timeless Essentials are just what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. And right now, you can check out my personalized collection at everlane.com slash friends. Plus, you'll get free shipping on your first order. That's everlane.com slash friends for free shipping on your first order. everlane.com friends. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package. A little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, it's everyone from comedians to politicians to for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So, you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiance of Stefan Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim and immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Midi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at the slash Deconstructed or on any podcast. Platform. So I actually now remember the interview that I heard with you when you talked about uh, no most white people voting today have never voted for Democrat. It was with David Remnick, and a very vivid moment is he asked you about whether or not the Democrats should change their strategy to appeal to Trump voters, and I believe you laughed at him. <laughs> I know you did,
0: <laughs> and I would have laughed too. Because I think we're in agreement on this. (laughs) I I was not laughing at David Remnick. I would never laugh at David Remnick. But it was just this kind of suggestion because it's been out there for so long about, um, you know, the Democrats need to be more responsive to the working class and that language about the working class. Oh, yeah.
1: What do they mean? What do they really mean? It means
0: white people. (laughs) Right. Yeah, Because when you looked at the data from 2016, those who made, I think it was like 50,000 and less or 30,000 and less, I forget the number, but the majority of them voted for Hillary. So if you're talking working class, they were voting for Hillary, but that working class was overwhelmingly African-American, Latino, Asian-American. Native american they're voting for Hillary. So yeah. this isn't about the working class. This is about white people. And this is that thing about putting whites as the kind of, of almost the holy grail of American democracy. So somehow Democrats have failed because whites aren't running to the Democrats in mass. But we need to ask a really hard question. How do you recruit W- woo in when the foundational principle there is anti is anti-blackness, um, anti-Muslim, anti-Latino, anti-immigrant, anti-anti-anti, because that's what Trump bought, brought, and that's what the majority voted for.
1: Yeah, my personal position on this is, is those, some of those people may be gettable, maybe, but they're not worth focusing on. Uh, that I actually agree that I we agree. should we should focus on the working class meaning everyone who is working class which would mean people of color
0: <laughs> right <laughs> I agree I you know I I and that's the thing is that somehow we 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 talk about you know if only we had the policies but the policies were there mm-hmm. the affordable care act was providing something that hadn't been there before and you saw like whites in Kentucky who finally had access to health care, voting for Trump and the Republicans. That Sarah Cliff story
1: in, in Vox, and actually, there's an ad for her podcast on this show. Yeah,
0: it is a great. I mean, I read that article and it was it was so illuminating. Yeah. It 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 was almost like the Rosetta Stone for me. <laughs> you know, you could almost hear the angels singing in the background. I went, wow. You know, and I think about Elkhart, Indiana. Uh, where RVs are made. Uh, when Obama came to power, Elkhart, Indiana, and was on its last leg because nobody was buying RVs. And he did a massive infusion of support th- in that area to, to prop Elkhart, Indiana up and that business up so that people could continue to work. And the business turned around. And they voted overwhelmingly. Republican.
1: And was there a story like Sarah Cliff's story that showed what—because the story we were talking about with Sarah Cliff is that she went out to Kentucky and talked to these people about their health care, and they—what they said, it wasn't that they didn't know they were on Obamacare. A lot of people, I think, are like, oh, there's just dumb white people. They don't—you know, or Mm -hmm. dumb poor people. They don't know that they're on the Affordable Care Act. They knew that, Mm -hmm. right? What what the crazy thing or not so crazy because there's a lot of American history to back it up. But the thing that they believed is that, oh, Trump won't take our health care away. Right. And what does he mean? But what do they mean by our he I mean, Trump was elected on a platform of socialism for white people. Exactly. And if if he could could pull that off, they there's no
0: question he would win again. Exactly. And think about that. I mean, and so that's what I wrote in the post-election epilogue that's in the paperback of White Rage. Because what Trump was offering, you know, Hillary talked about stronger together. Mm. And so she was offering a policy platform that figured out how to begin to marshal the incredible resources of the United States of America so that all of its people could benefit. So that we could have good living wage jobs, that we could have access to health care, that we could have a clean environment, that this could affect all of us. What Trump offered was what you're talking about, and I call it a neo-apartheid state, Mm. where you have the resources of this nation marshaled to benefit whites. And it's predicated on the backs of labor without rights. And so you use heavy policing in the Black community, and you use the force of deportation and ICE in the Latino communities and in um, the Asian American communities as a way to, to quell dissent, as a way to cow those populations into not agitating for their rights. So they Become labor without rights, and all of those resources that that labor is generating are supposed to flow into the white community. That's what Trump was offering, neo-apartheid. You write in the book that this situation
1: is not sustainable.
0: (laughs) It's not. What do you think is going to happen? I think at a certain point... um, A couple of things are going to happen or this can go in multiple ways. I can see that you get a general strike where think about what has just happened in Wisconsin, where the will of the people has just been systematically denied. gutted. Like, I don't know why you even bothered to come out here and vote. We're going to do what we're going to do, which is to maintain power, which means that we're going to continue to craft policies that's going to screw you over. Deal with it. That's basically what the Republicans said to the people in Wisconsin. The options are acquiesce, which means that they're going to double down on that that power grab, fight them through the courts, a court system that has been um, a thin barrier, frankly, Mm -hmm. um, and it's being corrupted um, by this current regime. Three is that you're going to have somewhere in there Whites who, the that we're going to move to the majority of whites who are like, okay, I don't like how this is going, and this is not the America that I know. This is not the America that I want. And they begin to form the kinds of coalitions that can begin to turn this around. Or we're going to have all hell break loose.
1: You're really leaving it up to
0: us, huh? I don't know. That's- <laughs> You know, the the, the beauty is, is, I believe that we control our own destiny. I
1: want to say, I actually, I agree with your, your prognosis. Something that I've said on this show before is that things will start to change when white people put their bodies on the line. Hello. <laughs> Can I get an amen, Carol? Well. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I want to explain what I mean by white people putting their bodies on the line. Perfect. Yes. Is, yes. Is... I actually do mean that sort of literally, meaning put, go out there and protest. Like we can't just have protests of Black Lives Matter and women's marches. We have to, we have to make this a movement where people can see the strength in the streets. Mm -hmm. And then also we need to show up when we're asked to show up. You know, I mean, and I also want to be very clear. I don't necessarily think that white people need to lead those movements. But we need to put our bodies there. I agree. And until people see that white people are on board for this, I think it's going to be
0: harder. It's hard to get other white people involved, basically. I think about the civil rights movement. It's one of the courses that I teach. Mm -hmm. And um, so let's take SELMA or we can take uh, what led to the Civil Rights Act. But let's take SELMA In SELMA. Um, black people had been organizing and protesting for years, um, trying to um, exercise their right to vote. In in Dallas County, where Selma was, I think only 0.9 percent of African-Americans were registered to vote um, because Sheriff Jim Clark had just come down hard in terms of, of limiting access to to, to voter registration. And in one of those protests, a black man was killed. His name was Jimmy Lee Jackson. He was trying to protect his mother from a beating, and the cops killed him while he was protecting his mother. And this, was, this led to that Edmund Pettus Bridge Bloody Sunday march that is so iconic in American memory, where, where you had the nonviolent protesters who were symbolically carrying Jimmy Lee Jackson's body to Montgomery to put it on the doorstep of Governor George Wallace. And then there's Bloody Sunday where the cops are just beating the crap out of nonviolent protesters. We see the images with John Lewis being trampled, Hosea Williams being trampled, um, Mrs. Boynton, Amelia Boynton being just knocked unconscious. We see it all. We see the tear gas. But that still wasn't enough to get us to the Voting Rights Act. It took the subsequent murder of a white minister, Reverend James Reeb, who came down to Selma to march for black people to to exercise their right to vote. And with the murder of a white minister, the nation was like, oh, my God, what just happened here?
1: And this may seem overdramatic to some people, but I I believe you cover this in White Rage. Like that was a, or one of the books I have now read them both in quick succession. uh, That was a a, a tactic that the Mm -hmm. African American organizers knew they were not to have someone killed, obviously, but to bring white people in to to highlight this movement that they they knew they weren't going to get the kind of coverage and sympathy that they needed. Exactly. Unless there were white people there.
0: You know, so this was Freedom Summer. Yeah. Freedom Summer down in Mississippi was also a campaign to register African Americans to vote in Mississippi. And there had been a couple of horrific murders there, and nothing had happened um, from uh, voting rights activists, black voting rights activists murdered. And so Bob Moses of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, conceptualized the idea of Freedom Summer. And what Freedom Summer would do is it would bring in white college students, particularly from these elite universities, Harvard, Stanford, Michigan, Yale, and bring them into Mississippi to begin to register Black people to vote. The idea, of course, was not to get somebody killed, but was that these children, these students, are the children of prominent folks. They're the children of U.S. senators, of federal judges. <laughs> that that surely Mississippi will 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 pause at this, so that the work of democracy can be done. Instead, what happened was on the first day of Freedom Summer was that uh, Mickey Schwerner, Andrew Goodman, and James Cheney were murdered by the sheriffs in Neshoba County, working with the Klan, working with the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission. So two young white activists and a black activist were killed. That was, again, this kind of, oh, my God, what just happened here? And... That is what led, helped lead to the Civil Rights Act of 1964.
1: I hope Heather Heyer didn't die in vain.
0: You know? I know. I know.
1: And it is, it seems again overdramatic, or maybe it, I, I hope people don't think it sounds like you and I are, are inviting violence of any kind or saying that that's going no. to happen. God, no. But what I want to insist is the
0: next time you see a Black Lives Matter protest, go. <laughs> and, and 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 because when you think about it, what African Americans are talking about here is a justice system that is truly a justice system. Mm-hmm. this isn't something that is black only no when we have a justice system that gets corrupted, when we have a justice system that feels comfortable in killing people think about what happened up in minnesota where the white woman was gunned down and there was this kind of shock like she was australian they went oh my god they just killed a white woman Mm -hmm. when when the the kinds of norms the kinds of ethical boundaries the kinds of operating codes are eroded by the systematic corruption that gives us a Tamir Rice. That that gives us a Sean Bell. That gives us an Amadou Diallo. That gives us a, an Oscar Grant. As all of those things keep happening, the 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 ethical standards, the operating standards, are eroded to the point where everybody is at risk. And this is what we're seeing as well in our democracy with voting rights. I mean, it's it's. These these battles are not black-only battles. These are battles for the heart and the soul and the operating ability of America, of the United States of America. We need to understand that.
1: And that is it for the show. We'll keep it short and sweet this week. I will simply remind you that if you want to get in touch with the show, you can via email at withfriendslikepod at gmail or via the Twitter machine at crooked underscore friends. And... Please take care of yourselves.